Please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, the first chapter, beginning with verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 27. Anybody who's alive in America today knows that America is an individualistic nation. I remember reading a number of years ago as a, an undergraduate uh, history student at University of Wisconsin in Madison, uh, an essay by a man named Turner who traced uh, a very short essay, who traced the history of the influence of the frontier on American culture. And it was a sort of once-over lightly treatment, but having read it, it becomes an interpretive grid that you see everything through. And uh, if I remember correctly, Turner's thesis was that the kind of skills and gifts that are required on the frontier as America pushed west and began to reclaim land from wilderness, it's interesting how today we think we need to reclaim uh, land for wilderness, not from it, um, but the kinds of gifts and skills that are needed for that are those which make a man able to survive on his own, uh, make him able to stand with his family against all comers, whether it's uh, wild animals or the attacks of the Indians or the kinds of storms and, and lack of uh, uh, being able to go down the street and buy groceries, you know, that that the kind of man that was needed was a manly, individualistic, stand firm, I can do anything man. And that that is how we need to begin to understand American culture. That You, you can see hints of that all through our culture. So, so since we're Americans and uh, since we have the culture of America in us, when we come to Scripture, we tend to read Scripture as Americans. And what I mean by that this morning is we tend to read it as individualists. Uh, that's the value that we have. And, and we miss so much of Scripture because so much of Scripture actually talks not so much about individuals, but it talks about uh, the, the group. Um, I remember few sermons clearly that I've heard in my life, but one I remember very clearly was that preached by my brother here one evening, which was a sermon on the nature of what it means to be born in Zion. And what he was, what he was showing us was that the psalm opens up this concept of the fact that if we are born again by the Spirit of God, then we are citizens of a city. And the city is called Zion. So anytime you read in Scripture this, this re reference to Zion, we ought to all think of our corporate identity. And so I want to exhort us this morning as I read the text, I want us to think about our corporate identity. Not, I don't want you to think about being an individual, at least for a little while. I want you to think of yourself as just one faceless uh, mechanism or faceless uh, uh, gear in a mechanism called the church. That's all you are. You're, you're, you're not Tim. You're not Mary. You're, you're just a part of Zion. You're just one faceless part of the machine of Zion. Now, I don't mean machine in the sense of being cold and, 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 and steel. I mean the machine of God's work in this world. Let's read together Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. As... Paul writes to this group. He is in prison. He's suffered great adversity. And he has gone through this adversity with them. He's made allusion to it. And he's writing a church, the book of Philippians, some of you know. It's, if you go through the letters of the New Testament, Philippians is the most upbeat. But we know that there was a problem in Philippi among the Christians there. And the problem was, as always, division. And uh, the, the most obvious example of it in the book is where he stops in the middle uh, of talking to them by letter and he says, I plead with you, Doi and Sintiki, to agree with one another in the Lord. But you see many other themes throughout the book of Philippians, many other evidences of, I should say, the theme of lack of unity. But again, it was a good church. It was a good church. And here's what he says to them, beginning with verse 27 of chapter 1. He says this, this is God's word, and it's eternally true. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, 
so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that, too, from God. For to you, it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. This is God's Word. So, as he goes through... He's, if you look at the verses above, we have that very famous statement, verse 21, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. So he's charting his own pilgrimage, his own walk, his own life. And he's showing them that to him, he, he's, he's uh, emotionally and spiritually kind of indifferent to the issue of whether he lives or dies. Um, it's not that he's a stoic. It's not that he's burned out his brain cells on drugs and he has an addled mind and, you know, he doesn't really care whether he lives or dies anymore. That's a rock and roll star. That's not Paul. Paul isn't indifferent to the issue because he's burned himself out. Paul is indifferent to the issue because he has a tough time choosing between leading people to Christ and seeing Christ. And that's the way we ought to live. We ought to be indifferent to life and death because it's a hard choice whether to minister to Christ in as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me, says Jesus. And Mother Teresa always used to say that when she cared for people dying of AIDS and people from the streets of Calcutta, that they were Jesus. And that's how she'd care for them. Well, we, have to, we ought to have a holy indifference to whether uh, our hearts are tugged by those with needs to lead them to Jesus or whether our hearts are tugged to see Jesus and to be with Jesus. Paul makes it very clear that he's hovering halfway in, halfway out, for him to live as Christ, to die as gain. And he says, though, uh, I am hard-pressed from both directions. Uh, But then he says in verse 24, Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Um, they know what he's suffering. They know how he's torn. They know how he would like to be done with the constant suffering that's been his lot. And now, having meditated on himself personally, what does he do? Well, he goes back and he says to them, all right, now you. You know, I've talked a little bit about myself. Now you. And he says, conduct yourselves, what? In a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourself. What is it that's the ordering principle of your life? How do you conduct yourself? Do you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of being Tim Bailey's child? Do you conduct yourself in a manner that's worthy of a professor? or a teaching assistant, worthy of someone who's getting a Ph.D., worthy of someone who owns a business and is an upstanding member of the community, worthy of someone who has a child and ought to maintain some sort of image of being a good mother, worthy of someone who lives in uh, Spicewood, Um, worthy of an American, worthy of a citizen of Bloomington, Worthy of being your father's daughter, your mother's son. Worthy of the family name. Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of what? The gospel of Christ. I wonder, when we think of our lives, what do we think about reputation? being worthy of something. I think probably most of us are normally much more aware of the way our actions affect our reputation or the reputation of our family or the reputation of our business 
then we are aware of the fact that our conduct is influencing the reputation of Jesus Christ. I've often made fun of people that have uh, the little fish that indicates being a Christian on the back of their car. You know, it's cheesy, you know. I guess as I get older, what I really think about it is, you know, God bless them because they're publicly signaling their faith and consequently they're going to drive in a way that honors their Lord. It's incomprehensible to me that anybody would drive the way I drive and have a fish on the back of their car. (laughs) Stop laughing, Rob. (laughs) You're not far behind me. (laughs) Well, yeah, you are, but... um, But isn't it interesting how so many people are willing to testify to their faith on the back of their car? And you can look at that as one of two ways. Well, what I'd really like to see is them having a testimony, you know, that that in the way they work and the quality of their labors, the way they study and everything. Well, you know, my guess is that an awful lot of them do have a testimony in the way they work and the way they do their studies. It's in conformity with the fish that's on the back of their car. They are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when they drive, what they're doing is they have the name of Christ at stake with their car, the way it acts, and they then must conduct themselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you, as you go through your life, do you signal who you are to the people that know you? Do people that you study with and people that you live among, do people that you work with, do people that you are the boss over, and does your boss know? Is it obvious? Have you claimed publicly in a way that people understand that you are a citizen of heaven? Because after all, there's no need for you to conduct yourself in a manner that's worthy of the gospel if nobody knows that the gospel is at stake in your life. We can fall very easily into the trap of thinking that the purpose God has for each of us is for each of us to live uh, quietly and alone and sheltered such that we get to heaven without too many stains. But before we get done this text, you'll see that blown to smithereens. Uh, Remember last week I was talking about if you've ever skied, you know you have to fall to get better. Well... Somebody who has the reputation of Christ disconnected from their lives with their friends and co-workers doesn't need to worry about falling. There's no place to fall. If you haven't climbed high, you don't need to fall. They haven't put the reputation of Jesus Christ at stake with their lives. They have not spoken of Him. They have not rebuked sin. They have in no way confessed Christ. In no way. And consequently, who cares whether the reputation of Christ grows or doesn't? Who cares whether or not They conduct themselves in a way that honors the gospel. Nobody knows the gospel's at stake with us. You know? What people really know about so many Christians in this country is that they're a citizen of the United States of America and that they're patriotic. And in America today, in many ways, to be a Christian and to be an American is the same thing. Again, let me ask you, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your cousin, your co-worker, your dorm room uh, uh, roommate, uh, your professor, your student, um, your client, do they know that the reputation of Jesus Christ is at stake with you? Do they know that? Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And notice how seamlessly this pastor, because that's what Paul's always being, this pastor deals with his relationship with his people. And he's got people all over the place, in Ephesus and Philippi and Corinth, everywhere you go, Paul's got people. All right? And notice how he treats them. He says, Conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. What? So that. Whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will will hear of you. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? He's he's talking to them about how they should live. And then he says, so that 
You know, whether, you know, I'm in your face at a distance by writing and by what I hear, whether I actually come, you know, think about that. I might show up. You know, think of the Olsons living right now with their parents a long way away. What's this expression? While the cat's away, the mice do play. Well, Paul says, hey, you know, I could show up at any time. And that's not just a warm fuzzy. He is pushing against them about their conduct. So it's the voice of a father saying to the children, you never know when I might come home. Live in such a way that you are worthy of the gospel of Christ so that you never know when I might come home. So whether I come home and open the door or whether I just hear, conduct yourself, you feel this pressure of the dad, right? And this is the kind of life that your elders should have among you. If you have no fear of your elders, they're not your elders. If you have no fear of your father, he isn't your father. Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens, all right? Now, of course you love your elders and your father, right? I'm not worried about you loving them and them loving you. What I'm worried is they'll think that they love you without disciplining you without rebuking you, as Paul's doing right here. Why would we think that the Bible is a book that we can take and we can set it over here and then we can stand here, okay? And that's 2,000 years ago and we look over at it and we say, huh, huh. You know, the Philippians needed that kind of thing. They were a sad bunch of people. It must have been hard to live back then. They must have had gnarly dudes in their congregation to have this problem with lack of unity. And the Corinthians, whoo! Man, can you imagine that? Can you imagine the talks on the telephone? Boy, I'm glad that we live in a day when things like homosexuality and fornication and division and scandal aren't in the church. Yeah, they're in the world, but we're not a part of the world. We're part of the church. We look at the Bible as if it's sort of a period piece. It's like walking into a museum. You know, A museum is very, very old. And you can look at how people were back then, 2,000 years ago. But in some ways it has an effect on us. It has some applicable things. But You know, the fact that Paul, for instance, in this book, in the first chapter, says, as the pastor of this flock, or one of their pastors, uh, I'm watching, I might show up any time, I'm going to hear about you, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. We don't somehow make the transition that it is the normal life of the people of God, that they know their elders and pastors, and that there's enough intimacy between them and their spiritual leaders that the reputation of Jesus Christ that is at stake with them will actually be engaged by their spiritual leaders in such a way that they will think about seeing their elder next Sunday when they make a choice whether or not to flagrantly sin during the week. Do you get the point? How could it be true in the Bible but not true in our lives? How could we think that in the Bible there's this intimacy... How could we in the Bible see this intimacy and then have no expectation for it in the church? In the church, we think that, you know, we show up and uh, the most identity that we have as individuals is that the check that's put in the offering plate has our name at the top and, you know, the debit is taken from our account, (laughs) you know. Listen, churches... 150 years ago, 250 years ago, had 1,500 people, but they were intimate. They had care. They had shepherds. They had sheep. They knew each other. When they sinned and failed, they would meet with their elders. It was just constant that there was a personal aspect to the relationship. And this is what we're seeing here with this little statement here. Uh, you know, hey, I might show up any time. Think of all the churches in the, in the Roman Empire that were thinking, Paul might show up any time. And that had an impact on how they lived. He didn't just say, remember, Jesus is watching, which is true. And we all accept that fine. We've all long ago gotten complacent about sinning, knowing Jesus is watching. But Jesus intends the church 
to have shepherds who also watch. You understand? So that if you've gotten inured to the fact that Jesus is watching, you still feel the fact that your elders are watching and your dad and your mother are watching and your grandparents are watching, you know? And no matter where you go, I mean, why can we have this in a rock and roll song? You know? Every step you take, every move you make, I'll be watching. In love, it's okay. But in the church, it's not. Some of you are older. That's a rock and roll song. (laughs) About unrequited love. If you love, you watch. If you love, you influence. If you love, you lead. If you love, you encourage. If you are a child of God, you will always find a church of God where you will be loved. And if you don't have it, your heart cries out saying, I must be a part of the family of God. It's not enough to be a cog in a machine. If you want to read a book on this, read Kierkegaard's Attack Upon Christendom. Uh, meditations near the end of his life on the church as a machine where the main purpose is to give the pastor a salary. He says, I'd like to try an experiment, and that is every pastor of the state church will be continued to be supported financially and given his salary on one condition, and that is that he has no people in the pews. And he says, my experiment is this. I would like to know, will any of them quit? What is it that makes us elders and pastors and deacons and older women of the church? Is it that we have souls that we feel that our lives are to be consumed, serving, and loving? Well, this is Paul. This is Paul. This should be us. This is Paul. This should be us. This is the book of Philippians. This should be us. This is the book of Corinthians. This should be us. There should be a tender and uh, loving and firm, tender and loving and firm intimacy in the church of Jesus Christ. This is what it was in the past. If you go back, as I'm going to mention this over and over again, and you read the accounts of the churches at the time of the Reformation, you read the account of the meetings of the elders in Calvin's Geneva, you will see that every meeting is consumed helping people have good marriages, uh, avoid drunkenness, not be adulterers. It's the same stuff going on today, and that's what you see right here. And so, as Americans, we haven't gotten so sophisticated that we're beyond it. We're normal. We're just normal. We like to think we're not, but we're really, really normal. And that means that we live together intimately. So he says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. Okay, I will hear of you. What? That you are standing firm in one spirit. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, uh, literally soul, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Okay? I'm concerned about your conduct, that you not cause the name of Christ to be blasphemed. I'm watching you. I'm going to hear about you. I might come and see you. I might only hear about you. But this is what I want from you, says the pastor, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Okay, so, they're to stand. They're to strive. Stand and strive. Now, what is obvious here? Again, every time you read the Bible, just assume that as an American, you're going to be naturally predisposed to think it's, 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 uh, it's wrong, it's, it's misguided, it's ancient. Um, what don't we like about this? Well, we don't like about it. The controlling metaphor is battle. It's very interesting that... Uh, 
as a culture, battle is just filling our lives. I mean, how many computer games? I want to buy computer games occasionally for my kids or for my cousins. You know, we pick a cousin's name for Christmas. So I, I go to the computer game section of uh, like uh, Best Buy or something, and I start walking down the aisles thinking, okay, well, you know, what does Benji want? What would Benji like, you know? And, you know, the whole aisle is just one picture after another of, like, monster, giant, Goliath, like, blood-sucking, like, Dracula's, like, you know, it's just one orgy of battle, you know? And we have this basic principle that our children and the gifts we give to other people's children are not going to have as a theme you know, blood and gore, you know, I don't know. If you disagree, that's fine, but that's our principle. And so I see the aisles filled with this. So finally, I'm reduced to like, well, let's see, he can build roller coasters or he can play golf, which is almost pathetic in the other direction. (laughs) No, not really. I'm sorry, those of you that like to play golf, it's a nice boring game. But, but boy, when those moments of tension come, there are moments, you know. <laughs> I play golf once a year. So when it comes to computer games, violence is absolutely constant. Blood, guts, guns. And, and you know today, the truth is that when it comes to the design of computers... The controlling processor is no longer going to be the CPU, but it's going to be the graphics card. You know that. (laughs) Those of you who know computers know I'm telling you the truth. NVIDIA is going to be more important than, uh, what's the name of the the manufacturer of Intel? Yeah, NVIDIA is going to be more important than Intel. You know why? Because what's really driving computers and their design has nothing to do with business. It has to do with the graphics of the gore games. And so they're going to start offloading tasks from the CPO to the the graphics chip, and eventually they will offload tasks from the graphics chip to the CPO, and it's already happening. So this is computers. Pornography and death. And this is our culture. If I come into your room and I take somebody that knows how to get into a PC, I know Max. That's what I will find on your computers. And so you live in it. You go to movies. You know, the great thing about Tolkien's movies, Meryl and I saw about five minutes of this second movie, The Two Towers or whatever it's called. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I'm not saying don't go. I'm just saying we saw five minutes. What is it? It was blood, guts, and gore. And you read it. Uh, you think about it. The newspapers are even filled with the prospects of America engaging in it. Um, and yet, the hypocrisy of us, the hypocrisy of us, that when Paul in the Bible speaks of death and war and battle, we all go, <laughs> Well, you know, that's not very spiritual. You know, we get turned off by it. And that's why they're removing all the military songs from the hymnals around the country. Oh, this is demeaning to God. (laughs) You know, this talk about, you know, battle and war and blood and guts. And that's always how Satan does it. It's always. Satan is the great usurper, you know. He takes sexual intimacy in the bounds of marriage, heterosexual, lifelong, sweet, beautiful. You know, can you imagine if you're married, having your spouse die and having that bed be cold? And it's not about sex, it's about marriage. (laughs) It's about the beauty of lying next to the woman you love and waking up and she's next to you. And then Satan does what? He takes it. He just mangles it to pieces and then seduces you into thinking that that's true sex. And and monogamous marriage is really sex for hire, which is what the feminists say. (laughs) You know, it's sex for money. The man gives her money. She gives him babies and sex. 
Satan claims that he understands sex. It's disgusting. The same thing is true of war. You know what war was invented for? It was invented for the destruction of the evil one. The last battle will be when God reduces that man of evil to the bottomless pit forever and ever and ever and all his minions. And then for the first time in our life, we will have seen a true war. We will have seen a true righteous army put down a true army of wickedness. Do you understand that? And every war in between, the war in Eden and the last battle, every war is just a sort of sort of mixture of evil and wickedness and, and bad choices. And so we engage in it on the computers and we have diplomats to negotiate it and we have memorials to it and, and we read books and we go to movies about it. But when it appears in Scripture and when we're told that the Christian life is a life of battle and when we're told to stand firm and to contend, we withdraw from it because we've already burned out on war as if it doesn't matter, as if the shedding of blood is, is a matter of entertainment. And so when we're supposed to be manly and to stand and to be masculine, to quit you like men, it says in the King James Version, we become women to show the women that we're sensitive and we won't get too harsh in our contending. And, you know, we're capable of understanding that these things really aren't eternal, that, you know, every man must be balanced and, and he must be very prepared to admit that he might, in fact, be completely wrong. And, and maybe these aren't eternal things at stake. This is just a matter of individual choice. And he doesn't want to be called a legalist. And he has all these ways of signaling that it's not a battle for life and death. You know, and he's not a warrior, and his manhood isn't at stake, that it's just all interpretation. You know, it's, it's hermeneutics, and it's exegesis, and it's theological traditions and values, and, you know. And so, when he gets at his computer, his trigger finger is ready. His video chip will give him instant gratification. He will waste them, he will be a man go out on the football field and he'll hit them hard and then he'll watch it on television. And then when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, we'll all become women. And we'll act as if it doesn't really matter. The father's absent, but he's listening and he might show up. And he wants us to be worthy of the gospel. And so he says to us what? He says to us, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for what? The faith of the gospel. You know how you have unity in a church? You have unity in a church when everybody stands. Doesn't kneel. Doesn't flinch. Doesn't lie down. Doesn't turn around. They stand. And how do they stand? One mind, one heart, one soul, one spirit. The words are spirit and soul in the Greek. One spirit, one soul. How do you have one spirit and one soul as a church? If you're just a cog in this machine, how do you do it? The way you do it is you stand. But you don't just stand doing nothing, do you? How are you to stand? You're to stand doing what? Contending. You see this picture? Think of it. Your father's writing you a letter. He says, hey, I want the reputation of God, the reputation of the gospel, the reputation of Jesus Christ kept well by you. I'm watching, I'm listening, and I can be showing up anytime. So you watch out. Here's what I want from you. I want you to be united, to stand, and I want you to contend. I want you to be a Roman legion walking up to the no man's land 
lowering the weapons, raising the spears, not flinching. And I want you to go for it in such a way that if you lose, you'll die. That's what it means to stand and contend. No, I was just kidding. <laughs> you know, no, you know, look at the birdie. You know, none of this wimp factor. Everybody that looks at you knows that the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake with your life. You have the colors on. You have the flag up. You've raised the flag. All right, everybody knows whose reputation is at stake with you. And then you stand. And then you fight. And listen, if you know the Bible at all, you know that this is a controlling metaphor all through Scripture. You know that the Bible is absolutely filled with discussions that are military and athletic in nature about the Christian life in the church of Jesus Christ. And if you didn't know that from the epistles, you could go back to the Old Testament, you could look at the Jews and how God dealt with them. And the whole story is a military story. The older I become, the more convinced I am that my two great failures in life Oh, I have so many. I, yeah, this is not a sermon about my failures, but let me just deal with two of them. One of them is that when I was young, I did not go into the military. And the other is that when I became a leader, I didn't study military history. So the older I get, the more I find myself reading military history and thinking, how do you win battles? How do you fight battles? Because why? Because that's what the Bible constantly lifts up. It's doing it here just incidentally. It just uses this language as if any, any, anybody would know why it's using the language of battle. And so why would we be good at battle games on our computers and not study the great history of strategy and wars if we're going into the pastorate? The pastorate is a battle. Shouldn't we study David? Shouldn't we study Elijah and Elisha? Shouldn't we study all the great warriors? Paul, think of the wounds he sustained on the battlefield. Think of his strategy in dealing with churches. Everywhere you go, every step you take, every move you make, I'm watching you. you know? well, what does that teach us about leadership? Recently, I have been reading uh, this book, which some of you have heard about and seen reviewed. It's called Carnage and Culture. And uh, it's by a guy named Victor Hansen, who's a professor of uh, history, I think, out at UC Davis or one of the California state schools. I forget which one. And uh, Hansen's thesis is that the reason in the West that we have won our battles is because our battles are fought by citizen soldiers as opposed to mercenaries. All right? And... Do you know that, you can't see it in the English, but do you know that woven through this text and through Paul's writing is the Greek word and its, its derivatives, polis, which is the word that we get our word politics, political, politician, and it has to do with the life of the citizens, their, their communal life, okay? The polis is the communal life of the nation, the city-state, the empire, the province, okay? Think of this week. Think of, uh, if any of you listen to what I listen to, the discussion of ISIC, the, the new extension of, of the interstate. And everybody in town is saying, what? Is this going to divide our community? So we have this sense of a corporate identity in Bloomington and that this interstate is threatening our corporate identity. Okay? So think. We all understand what it is to be a part of a corporate entity. Well, here's what he says about, this is from, uh, about the tradition, starting with the Greeks and coming the whole way down to today. He, he goes all through history, taking major battles uh, and ending with uh, uh, Vietnam. Okay? And he quotes, to start this chapter about Cannae, uh, the 216 B.C. battle, he, he quotes Aristotle from the Nicomachean Ethics. And he, Aristotle writes this. He says, Infantrymen of the polis, 
All right, which is, again, in our text, that word, it's derivative. Infantrymen of the Paulis think it is a disgraceful thing to run away, and they choose death over safety through flight. They choose death over safety through flight. On the other hand, hired soldiers who rely from the outset on superior strength flee as soon as they find out they are outnumbered, fearing death more than dishonor. Isn't that interesting? And then, listen to this. He's talking about the Battle of Cannae in 216 B.C. And he says about the Romans, the Romans had marshaled a nation of free citizens in arms. Okay? He says, despite the simplicity of Roman advance and the occasional inexperience of the recruits, the discipline of the legions was unmatched and the strength and courage of Italian infantry unquestioned. The Roman Senate, like the earlier Greek assembly and the caucuses of the royal Macedonian elite, was nurtured in a tradition that sought to send its armies against the enemy head on, and thus through the hammer blows of decisive infantry battle destroy him in a matter of hours. Few Roman commanders were ever prosecuted in the wake of defeat for their incompetence, only for cowardice in failing to engage the enemy in decisive battle. I'll never forget David Crumb saying to me that in the Marines and in the military today, don't ever fail to make a decision. You can make a wrong decision and you're okay, but if you fail to lead, it's over for you. And he says here, Few Roman commanders were ever prosecuted in the wake of defeat for their incompetence, only for cowardice in failing to engage the enemy in decisive battle. When Varro, the surviving consul at Cannae, returned to Rome after the debacle, he was greeted with enthusiasm. Apparently, his tactical blunders that resulted in thousands killed were overshadowed by his proven desire to lead inexperienced young Roman yeomen headlong to their deaths against Hannibal. He says the solution to the classical paradox was to field spirited citizen armies that were nevertheless huge, combining the classical Greek discovery of civic militarism with the Hellenistic dynast's willingness to recruit infantrymen from all segments of society. The Roman nation and its radical idea of an expansive citizenship would eventually do both brilliantly. In the process, ensuring that its armies were larger than those of the classical Greeks and yet far more patriotic than the mercenaries who enrolled in the thousands in service to the Hellenistic monarchs. And then one more short... Well, I'll let it stop with that. But his point is what? His point is that in the Western world, our tradition has been that we don't hire people to do our fighting, but we do it ourselves. And that we don't mind if you lose what we despise and will not put up with is if you are unwilling to engage the enemy in the protection of your wife and your children and your city. Now, how does that apply to us as a church? The way it applies is that a church is a place of great love and forgiveness for people who fail and sin. A church is a place where if you fail trying you'll never find the comfort and safety and love that you'll find in the house of God. We don't have any problem with you sinning. But once you flinch, and actually the word is the direct word that's used to refer to a horse that shies away instead of standing, clinging to the rocks as he goes into battle. Okay? If you shy away from battle, you know what will happen? Satan will take that flinching, he will take that division of the lack of courage and commitment to Christ, and he will exploit it so that the church becomes divided. You want to know what causes church divisions? What causes church divisions is when people do not stand and contend for the gospel with one mind. Church divisions are not caused by people who fall into sin and repent. David was a greatly unitive king over Israel, despite having Psalm 51 penned by him and known by everyone. Despite the fact that he killed one of his greatest soldiers and took his wife. But David repented. And at the center of the church is this battle with the evil one. 
against the forces of darkness. And you're always going to have casualties in battle. There are always going to be people that fall into adultery and embezzlement and lying and gossip and slander. The church has always been filled with that. That ain't no problem. It's just the normal business of the church for us to deal with one another when we fall into sin. You know what we cannot stand? We cannot stand people who cast longing eyes back to Sodom and Gomorrah. And they become what? They become a pillar of salt. And you have to move on. You can't stay back and allow somebody's love for this world and all its blandishments and and seductions and and, and listening to its signs. You can't allow them to, to paralyze the church and to get the church timid and not standing and not contending. You can't wait and try to have a union with someone who loves the things of this world. What's going to happen? A church that has somebody like that and who is unwilling to repent and gives themselves to this world is a person who will peel off of their own choice and the church in excommunicating them will only confirm what already they chose to do. Why? Because we are to stand with one mind. How can you have one mind with somebody whose entire life is filled with a desire to compromise with the evil one? You can't do it. And so you have a choice. You can either, you can either become a church that's so bright and, and has such, such unbelievable superficial broadness that there is absolutely no unity other than they're Americans, so they're in church. Or you can say, if you hear the call of Jesus Christ, if you hear the command of the Apostle Paul and every pastor and elder and older woman that's ever stood together in the church, if you hear that call and if you're sold out to Jesus Christ and if you don't mind having your sins and failures be public, which is a big hurdle, okay, this is for you. You know, We're here. This is the house of God. It's, it's gnarly. It, it gets blood and gutsy. You know, sometimes, you know, we have to discipline people publicly and sometimes people will come and talk to you. But boy, man, see how those Christians love one another. And we stand firm. The reputations of Christ is at stake with us. We have one mind. Not because we all think that Republicans are right about economics. Who cares? Samuel Johnson said, Why, sir, all schemes of political improvement are laughable things. Okay? Not because we all drive Toyotas or Hondas or Chevys or pickups. Not because we all dress a certain way. But because we are committed to submitting to that father, the Apostle Paul, and to every father that follows in his footsteps, when he says, you guys, I'm watching you, and I might show up any time, and if I don't show up, I'm going to hear about you, and it is your job to not give a bad name to Jesus Christ. I want to see your church there in Bloomington standing firm, not flinching, You are citizens, not of America. You are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And the reputation of the Lord of all creation is at stake with you. Now, you stand and you contend. You walk up to the the DMZ, to, to that no man's land, and before the charge, not one of you turns around. The banner's raised. Everybody knows what's at stake. Now, I don't care if you die. I don't care if your shot is wide of the mark. But you better be firing. Now, I could ask at this point whether this is a vision that can, that can own your heart. But I don't need to ask because you're all buying computer games where you're blowing people away. And you're going to movies about it. So I know it's a vision that can own your heart. So can I seduce you? Can I seduce you from that disgusting nothingness of entertainment to a culture that's biblical and that speaks honorably about battle and war and that you die for Christ. And yes, the death might not be physical, but you know, it might well be physical. 
You know what they said in the ancient church? So many Christians died for their faith that they said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it's speaking of a man's sperm. And it was just known, that was a statement in the early church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So we might die spiritually, we might die emotionally, we might die psychologically. We might die a thousand deaths in the class when our essay is singled out for excoriation and lampooning by the professor because it has a naked profession of Jesus Christ. And if that happens to you, you do what Adam Spady did to me when he had to go to a lecture hall at the hospital having to do with how to care for people at the end of life. And he invited me to come, and I didn't want to go because I knew Adam would stand firm for the gospel. (laughs) I don't know what Adam's problem is. (laughs) You know something? I love Adam. I love him. Because anywhere I went, I knew that I would have to stand for the gospel. And sure enough, it gets to the end of the lecture. There's a man that gives a lecture, and oh, it's so sophisticated. And he's an ethicist, and it's casuistry, and it goes on and on. And everybody just feels fine about nursing people blindly into eternity, not giving one thought to the destiny of their immortal souls. And Adam, at the end of the lecture, as a, as a, as a wet-behind-the-ear uh, medical school among you know, surgeons and doctors and nurses and social care workers and professors from the university stands up at the end. You have questions. He says, yeah. He says, uh, what about um, what about at the end of life speaking to them about Jesus Christ? Now, do you think Adam is naive? No. <laughs> Adam knew exactly what he was doing. Adam stood there and he said, I love Jesus. I love Jesus and I know this looks stupid to you all, but you know something? If they're going to die, shouldn't somebody tell them about Jesus? And the man up front looks at Adam like he's a seven-headed monster. And the people, like, you can see their bodies kind of leaning away. And I will admit that I myself was ashamed and embarrassed to be sitting next to Adam. Because what I thought I ought to do is just, you know, be a little more nuanced, you know? You know? I mean, you have to say, Jesus! You know? If Norman Vincent Peale Robert Schuller don't have to say, Jesus is have to say Jesus. Now, that's the one thing you shouldn't say in this inclusive, tolerant, and pluralistic society is ever say Jesus, except as an expletive. But Adam says, the reputation of Jesus Christ is at stake with me, and I'm going to contend for the gospel, and I'm not going to flinch. And I love Adam. You know what? I love him because God uses Adam. So, you got the picture? You can either be brave watching football, going to IU basketball games and playing computer games and reading books, or you can contend for the gospel. And if you do that, this is a church for you, and you might fall and make an idiot of yourself and of me. But hey, I'm into people falling. Because you won't get good without falling. And I'll be proud to be your pastor. And I ask the same mercy from you I will give you. When I fall, you love me. And you just say, Tim, you keep contending for the gospel. We know where your heart is. Let's pray.